Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 132, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, a ProPublica investigation in Illinois raises a lot of questions about how to use quiet rooms, and a popular teacher-slash-blogger makes 2020 education predictions. Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest tells us why emotion is critical when teaching history. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by the principal that's ready to party like it's 1999, Christina Pollard. How you doing? I'm ready. Christina, do you, I I know you mentioned this in the last show that you don't really do resolutions, but I mean, like, can we reflect? We don't have to talk about what your resolution is for 2020, but did you have one for 2019 and how'd you do? Because I've, I have failed at mine. No, I don't really do resolutions, but you use the word reflect. I do take time to reflect on the year on experiences, relationships, um, practices at work and if I've made the necessary change or a shift in order to help improve something. But I don't literally write a list and say, okay, I'm going to lose 20 pounds in 2020. Right. I want to live healthier. I want to live a longer life. And that was something that I thought about in 2019 when I decided to start the keto lifestyle. So yeah. I didn't put a number on pounds. I didn't put a number on inches. I just want to live better. I want to eat healthier. I want to breathe. I want to sleep well. well. I like it that you say it that way because maybe I didn't fail at mine when you put it that way. I did improve, but I didn't really improve to the goals that I would like to. My, my resolution last year was to reduce my screen time on the phone, which I think that should be a lot of people's, let's be mm-hmm. honest. And, you know, you, you can track it, and especially with the new operating system that Apple has and and um, and set the timer so that it will literally shut you out. And then, but then you just override it, right? It depends. My overrides happen when I'm on holiday. Yeah. So during Thanksgiving, I had way more time to to read and to surf the net on my phone versus on on a work night. You know, it's long days at work, basketball duty, maybe. Yeah. You know, I like that it, it it shuts me off. The the things, the areas where I made the most improvements of breaking my phone habit was when I would find myself in off the grid and I didn't have a phone phone service, I would break literally the habit, the habit of opening my phone and looking right. at twi- Twitter or opening my yep. phone and looking at Facebook because phone usage for me is no different than I can't explain why I walk up and open the refrigerator door when I'm not hungry and stare at it, right? Like I'm just doing it. Yep. And or and it's out of practice. Or it's, it's out of habit. A smoker, and I never smoked, but you know, it's just that pulling that something to your mouth. That's right. You're just doing it, and you, yeah. And so until you can actually like literally not do it because you can't do it, I feel like that's the only way you can break the habit. So whenever I travel and I'm off the grid and I come back, my usage is way down. You know, one of the things that I noticed when I looked at my usage because I loved when that became available on um, the iPhones, mm-hmm. I looked at the percentage of screen time on the different apps that I was using. Right. And if I put more time into social media than I did the Bible app, there was my reflection right Right. there. Exactly. So think that's right. So I think reflective practices is what um, I do at the beginning of the year and think about, okay, what, what, what do I want to, you know, how do I want to 
improve this relationship or how do I want to, you know, just get better at. So I, I try not to put numbers on anything right. because if you don't reach that number, then you feel like a failure and then you quit altogether. I hear you. Well, we need to jump into the teacher's lounge because I know you have a story that you're fired up about. It's actually an investigative piece that you read and go for it. I'm just going to tell you right now, it's just outright ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I've been in education 22 years and to be honest with you, I did. I had absolutely no idea this existed. So in the state of Illinois, um, and probably in other places across the nation, they have what's called quiet rooms. There is a community where um, there's a series of schools that are considered special education schools. So they're serving news students with a variety of, you know, learning and physical um, disabilities. And when these students either um, act out or respond inappropriately, they are placed in quiet rooms or what's called blue rooms. Mm -hmm. When you initially think about it, it could be a sensory type room where you go, okay, they're going to go in there and they're going to meditate and they're going to sit on a squishy bean bag or they're going to play in the uh, letter box that has sand because of the touch and the feel. But that's not it at all. Yeah, it's an itty bitty room with padded walls up under the padding is center blocks and they're locked in. This is traumatizing yeah. and I cannot believe this and, exists. And they're called blue rooms, I guess, because the padding's blue, right? The padding is blue. But, like, but if you have not taken a tour, if you have not seen it as a parent or someone on the outside, this it's left very open for you to interpret what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and it, it just is ripe for abuse, and it's not necessarily Listen, abuse of the child, it but right, is absolute abuse. Well, and not, not even so much abuse. It is abuse of the child, but it's it's ripe for a teacher to abuse the. I'm putting in quotes, the resource, because I can see you have this room that's there. And when you're frustrated, you're having a bad day. You just throw a kid in there. Well, here's what's really disturbing about it. Now, I didn't research and read uh, that teachers were placing students in these rooms. If they have an issue with them in the classroom, administrators, security, and non-certified personnel were the ones putting the students in these quiet rooms. And actually sitting outside of the room and documenting everything a child said and did while in the quiet room. And it's just disturbing no matter what age, but imagine a five or six year old child with autism right. who already has some social dysfunction, probably cumulative uh, issues and not really sure how to relate with their feeling or their experiencing. And then now you're stuck in this room all by yourself. You just said something that got the, the wheels turning in my head about how the story probably came together. And you said there were people sitting outside the room documenting this, which means that if it's being documented in a school district, it's arguably a public record. And it is a public record. But guess who 90% of the time, based on the article, never saw the documentation, hmm. never was aware that the documentation was being collected. Who, who wasn't aware? The parents. Okay, the parents. The but parents had no idea how traumatizing it was for their child. They did not know the experiences their child had within the quiet rooms, and they did not know that they were basically crying out to be released and to be helped. And someone literally ignored them just to be able to document what they were doing. If they never got quiet, if they never lowered their head, if they never apologized, 
they left them in there. But it's that documentation, I think, that probably allowed ProPublica, who is a yes. well-known journalistic organization, um, to probably, I guess, request those records. I'm guessing they... Request the records, request um, interviews. They've requested tours. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, several school districts declined the interview, declined a tour, mm-hmm. and really didn't share much information. One particular school district um, that chose to go ahead and invite them in the top leaders weren't even aware of the number of times children were being assigned to the quiet room. Wow. And here's where the law, this is where that thin line comes in there. In the state of Illinois, the law says that the quiet rooms should be used to prevent a major safety issue. Mm-hmm. So if a student is threatening to harm themselves, I don't see how the quiet room is going to help them with that or threatening to harm another student or a staff member. That's a secluded, isolated place for them to calm down and get it together. But once they receive access to all of those documents, this is where they were determining that students were being placed in the quiet room inappropriately for dropping a pencil on the floor, wow. for ripping a piece of paper, for talking out, for so basically insubordination, petty behaviors. Yeah, I'm not even going to call it insubordination, petty behaviors. Um, there's an incident where a child did not want to come to school. We all know students, kindergarten, possibly up to second grade, have times where they they don't want to come to school. They want to stay home. There's a relative in town. They want to stay at the house and visit. And this particular child cried, didn't want to get out of the car, um, didn't want to come to school. Eventually, they got the child to get out of the car in the car line. And then that person, that personnel, took that child directly to the quiet room because you didn't get out of the car fast enough. So in what are we teaching them? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I mean, I wonder in in your world, you, you kind of started saying where I think maybe this might be considered okay when you were saying maybe if the room had, could, could you design a room like this in your mind where it makes sense? Absolutely not because the children are left alone. So you feel like- They are they placed should, in this room with the door closed. Right. That is completely inappropriate. Right. And so you feel like uh, at least an authority figure should be in there with them. And then it should be a room maybe where you decompress in some way in an appropriate fashion. No, that's than no different than t- that's no different. What you're describing would be no different than sending a child to detention. Right. So I'm the detention monitor. You have to serve so many hours or so many days or so many minutes mm-hmm. um, for this inappropriate behavior that have that we have tried to redirect through reminders, through rewards, you mm-hmm. know, the reward and consequences. We've talked with your parent. We've had parent conferences. OK, so this is your consequence because you can't socialize with your classmates, not placing a child in a room that has absolutely no furniture, the center block walls. It's bare. It's it's. It's very similar to being placed in prison for hours. Right. And so, and, and forgive me if you, you mentioned this already, how long, like what were some of the, the worst case circumstances that you read the about? The law says they should not be in isolation more than 30 minutes. Some of those children were in isolation anywhere from 30 minutes to five hours. Five One particular hours. Wow. child was so distraught after being in isolation for two hours, but he was not released until his grandmother was able to pick him up at two o'clock in the afternoon. Well, yeah, no, that's outrageous. And, and you, you want to improve the social and emotional state of children. You are causing harm. Now, I think there was a little bit of good news to come out of the entire report, right? And I think it's, it's actually right at the top. They updated it. Um, 
And it's been outlawed in many places after the reports um, came out, after ProPublica revealed a lot of the trauma that it was causing, many school districts um, outlawed it. I will also say that there were some places that it was not as extreme, but some of the isolation were actually boxes that some school districts had something that would, was very similar to what you'd call a telephone booth. Mm-hmm. That's even smaller. You could cause a child to have claustrophobia. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, so just a kind of... They outlawed that in those those areas as well. It says, update, following the publication of this investigation on November 19th, Illinois officials took swift action, including issuing an emergency order to halt the use of isolated timeouts in public schools and introducing legislation into the uh, to institute a permanent right. ban. So that there is some good news, and it, it again, you know, I always like good journalism, and it's good to see that um, that is. is making somewhat of a difference there. Why did someone think it was okay to do that to a child? But even more so, why would you think it's okay to do that to a child with special needs? I don't. I mean, I don't have the personality to be able to to work with special needs students, so I I would never put myself in that position. I don't understand why some people do put themselves in the position when they don't have the patience that it takes because it takes a lot of patience. And and I just hate to see that that's the result of somebody who doesn't have the patience, you know, to they're just trying to buy themselves some time. Nick, I was so appalled. I thought, I don't even know how I'm going to get through this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know you were, you were fired up before we even started recording. I tried to settle down folks. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's good. It's good that there's people out there like you that are passionate about this and that's what prevents things like this from happening in in other districts, you know? So I'm just passionate about children. Children deserve our absolute best. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you for bringing that to our attention. Um, I've got uh, a little bit of a story uh, for you. There's a a teacher named Larry Ferlazzo who um, makes a list um, at the beginning of every year. Do do you know him? Yeah. Okay. Well, he apparently has a a blog and he makes a list and he follow him on Twitter. Okay. Well, he publishes like what he thinks will be next year's education trends, things that will happen in the following year. And I'm not going to go through his whole list. I I will link to his list if somebody wants to go and and read through the whole thing because I don't want to steal his thunder. But I will say a couple things that um, stood out to me that were on his list for 2020 and things we can look out for as we kind of head into the new year. So uh, the first one, he says, quote, the technology-driven personalized learning bubble will pop. He says, so he's saying the technology driven part of that will pop. Um, There will be a growing realization that tech is just a very small part of what is needed for personalized instruction. Instead of throwing money at gizmos and software, more and more school leaders will conclude that class size reduction, teacher training and effective uh, differential instructional strategies and support for social emotional learning initiatives should lead the way instead. I wholeheartedly agree. I do think that we were at a time where so many new ideas and trends were coming out in regard to technology and schools felt that they had to be able to keep up globally to prepare our children. But we are overly equipped now. We have to get back to the root of high quality instruction and making sure that teachers are equipped to to serve the children and their needs. And I can't agree more about the social emotional learning part. And um, I know that phrase is a little bit of a buzz word type right now, but... But the times have changed. I, I feel like information is so accessible right now that it is even too that much, much... at some point. It's even that much more important, not necessarily to teach dates and, you know, teach more about, you know, critical thinking and social emotional learning, how to interact with people. I feel like going yes. forward in a, in a work environment, that really will be a key tool for, for adults and, and kids to, to learn. You're right. Um, let's see what else. He says... 
a major study, we talked about this in the last episode, a major study demonstrating the effectiveness of restorative practices over punitive school discipline policies will be unveiled. Its findings will help move schools towards a tipping point and trigger a huge upsurge in schools moving in its direction. That's of restorative practices. That is going to take a, that's going to require a huge shift in thinking for educators. You're probably right. He um, also takes a shot at um, the Gates Foundation. He says, uh, with the departure of the Gates Foundation CEO, Sue Desmond Hellman, and after years of criticism and lack of success in its educational funding initiatives, the organization will announce that it's stepping back from grant making in that sector. That's a sad situation. That is a sad situation. But it also, Russ would often talk about this on this show, that sometimes you just, it takes more than just throwing money at something. But I'm not saying I, the Gates Foundation does incredible work, so I don't want to take away it from that. It does, but. and it has made a huge impact on high poverty, low performing areas, no matter how you look at this. You can't, I mean, you know, there's there's no silver bullet or miracle out there, but consistent professional development and the proper resources for schools to use to help improve reading, they, they've, they've done a good job. And the last one I'm going to share is, um, and we've mentioned this project once on this show, but we have not done a deep dive on it. And he says, the use of the New York Times 1619 project will increase the schools around the country and its popularity will trigger a wave of local projects examining the role of slavery in multiple communities. Have, have you had a chance to dive into this project yet? Yes. And again, major shifts in thinking right and being able to handle the information and what i really love about the project is that they provide different tools for you to be able to teach this or unpeel it with your staff i've shared it with some teachers haven't pushed it on them yet because you got to be careful you got to know where you work how you work how your district perceives it and we haven't discussed it on a district level but that's incredible work yeah, and so just to give some people some more background on that, It's a, the project was organized by the New York Times just this past year, 2019, with the goal of reexamining the legacy of slavery in the United States, and it was timed for the, the 400th anniversary of the arrival in America for the enslaved people from West Africa. And um, they claim, the New York Times claims, that this was a major initiative that they focused on, and it has been thoroughly fact-checked by academics and journalists and and it probably just you know gives a different perspective than maybe what we're getting in a textbook i will say some of what i've seen um it's just rich information it's enlightening it doesn't trigger any type of anger or emotion it's just like wow right and because you can't get it in the history books right you're not learning it in schools yeah, it's, um, I mean, again, back to like having access to all this information, let's tap into it. You know, the the web pages, at least the good ones, can update us with proper and accurate and current information that maybe a textbook that gets printed every 10, 15, 20 years um, isn't able to do. So um, I liked all those. He had some others on the list. Some of them were a little bit more political. I tried to stay away from uh, those, uh, but uh, certainly I will link to the his list in our show notes. Are you ready for the bright idea? Let's have it. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to tell us why emotion is so important when teaching history. Dr. Dave Newman is an assistant professor of history education at Cal Poly Pomona, and he was recently published in Social Education with his article titled, A Feeling for the Past, the Role of Emotion in History Education. Dr. Newman, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on this morning. Now, your article about um, this topic, about this emotion in the classroom, you actually opened it up 
with a moment that happened in your class where I guess you had students, it was a history methods class, and they were presenting to you a topic and everything was clicking on all cylinders, right? But kind of share that moment. Sure. So this was a lesson uh, that is sometimes talked about in world history courses as the age of anxiety. And it refers to the interwar period between World War I and World War II. And kind of the stereotypical presentation when we look at Weimar Germany is about hyperinflation and families carting wheelbarrows of money uh, to the store to buy a loaf of bread or that sort of thing. And the students had presented this model lesson in, in a pretty exemplary way in terms of the content. All of the elements of the lesson were fine, but as I was sitting observing it, I noticed that the rest of the students participating in it just didn't really click with it. And, and I felt like something was missing. And what struck me was that even, even though the title implies a feeling of emotion, a, a sense of anxiety, the students had presented the topic in a very kind of cold analytical way that didn't tap into the sense of anxiety that people at the time must have felt. And so what exactly could they have done in that moment to, to maybe tap into that emotion in your opinion? So they addressed some primary sources, which is good instructional practice, but I think there was an opportunity for them to explicitly ask students in the classroom some questions about those texts that would have drawn out the emotions that were implicit in, in the texts and, and ask students to do a little bit of inference making about what emotions were implied in those texts and why people of the time, why historical actors might have been feeling those particular emotions. And the real punchline of the lesson was about the rise of extremist movements, the rise of totalitarianism. And so the real tie-in would be how feelings of vulnerability and insecurity helped to fuel movements that, uh, totalitarian movements like Nazism, that promise extraordinary protections to people in ways that are appealing to them in, in extraordinary circumstances where otherwise they, they might not be drawn to such a movement. So this instance, I guess, really got you thinking. Now, do you work with students who are going to become educators in the future? Is this the, the group that you're working with? Yes, my students are all credential students. So they're post-baccalaureate and they're all headed into uh, jobs in teaching. And I typically teach them before they have done their clinical practice or, or what we used to call student teaching. So they're doing coursework, but not yet in the classroom in a significant way. So, so if I understand it right, you start thinking about this and then you start even doing some more research and, and looking at what experts say about emotion and, and history and education. And that's kind of how you, you came to this, this article that, that you penned. And you, you in it, you say the last two decades in education, they have really focused on cognition. Is that correct? What, what do you mean by that? Yes. So in history education in particular, the, the buzzword for at least a decade, maybe a bit longer, has been historical thinking. And I've been deeply influenced by that myself. Back when I was a high school classroom teacher, uh, Sam Weinberg from Stanford, when his book, Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts, came out, that was really a, a significant shift for me in the way I thought about teaching. And so historical thinking has been a really prominent way of addressing the nature of the task for us as history teachers. Uh, we, you know, a common lament is that by adults and current high school students alike, that 
teaching that history is often simply about factual content and uh, recalling facts and that sort of thing. And the historical thinking movement has really been an effort to engage students in deeper processes of reflection and analysis, which includes a lot of analysis of primary sources and reflecting on topics like cause and effect and significance and change over time and all of those sorts of things. So that's really been the dominant nature of the field for the last decade or two. And as I said, I've been really influenced by that and I think it's really important. Um, But what struck me was as I was continuing to do all this reading on the role of emotion that a real strong attention to cognition might have meant that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater a bit. And so you you cite, and I may not say her name correctly, but I think it's Mary Helen and Mordino Yang. Correct. And, and there was a quote in there. Um, she says, it is literally neurobiologically impossible to build memories, engage complex thoughts, or make meaningful decisions without emotion. And that one really struck me because I feel like that's the way I learn. I feel like if I, if I don't have this, you know, meaningful emotion attached to something, it it doesn't stick in my brain. Would you you feel the same? Part of what struck me and and got me thinking about this was my own connection to my discipline that, you know, I went into teaching both as a high school teacher and now as a college faculty member, in part because I feel really passionate about the subject. I feel uh, deeply alive when I'm studying something that I find really interesting. And I think I mentioned in the article as well, the fact that a recent study of effective teachers indicated that <clears throat> joyfulness in teaching is, is one of the key factors of success. And so part of what I was reflecting on was that my own connection and passion with teaching suggests that, just as you said, that we, we do have to have meaningful connections. We have to have some sense of significance and intrigue and curiosity to really pursue the learning that's required when, when learning sometimes becomes challenging. You, you also mentioned that, um, I guess, a lot of teachers use Ken Burns' uh, Civil War documentary as a way to connect emotion to the Civil War in the classroom. And, and I personally have never seen that particular one, but I have watched a lot of Ken Burns' documentaries, and, and they are amazing. They, they bring that emotion in there. Um, I mean, what are some other ways um, teachers could be bringing emotion into their history lessons? Right. So I think part of, part of what I was suggesting in the article was the way that uh, when we start a unit of instruction, uh, that is a, a larger sequence of instruction, I think we have to set the tone for why instruction matters, why this topic is really important. And we, there's a lot of research about use of essential questions and uh, sort of conveying to students the significance of the topic. But I think one way to do that is through something that taps into students' emotions. And a short film segment can be a way of doing that. And and asking students some kind of hook question, this is a pretty standard practice, but one that taps into emotions and then then teases that out a little bit more can be a way to help students recognize that that this topic is really a crucial topic and that there's, that there's something at stake. And uh, as I said before, we, we use a lot of primary sources in history education, and, and we have done so in the last uh, generation or so. But I think teasing out primary sources that have emotion implicit in it and noting that and trying to 
explore a little bit the subjective experiences of those who, who wrote the primary sources can be a way of drawing that out as well. In the world that we live in where, you know, like you said at the beginning, we, we're, we're teaching dates sometimes and, and, you know, significant events and try to, to put that in our memory. But we live in a world where I can hit a button on the side of my phone and ask Siri, you know, when the Civil War was or when Columbus discovered the Americas. That, um, that type of information doesn't seem as important as maybe having empathy for what was happening in history at that time. Am, am I on the right path there? Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, I do think that uh, your, your point is absolutely correct, that basic factual information is really easily accessible. So uh, providing facts as the, as the basic justification for our existence as history teachers is, is pretty tough in this age. And, and I do think those those efforts at critical thinking and deeper connection are, are really important and, and empathy is a part of that. Now I will say, I wrote an article a number of years back now about the importance of some amount of memorization because I do think without a basic kind of historical framework, it is really difficult to look up every fact and every piece of information. So I do think a basic chronology is helpful, but your larger point is, is right on I think that uh, that critical thinking and making connections and understanding significance, those are really the heart of the discipline and what what helps it transfer in terms of student success in college and, and in the workforce. You say something here that I found um, interesting. You say that teachers should not be shy about like showing their own curiosity, enthusiasm, outrage, or even grief about like pivotal historical moments. And, and what would, would you say to the, the teacher that might respond? Well, you know, almost like a, a news person, you don't want to offer your emotional feelings about an historical event because of maybe political concerns and so forth. Yeah, I do think uh, there are, there are reasons to be cautious about, about expressions of emotion. I don't think teachers should always express or engage their own emotion. Um, I think what I'm trying to press on is is a little bit of a pendulum swing. I, I think, at least in my own experience as a teacher, for a long time, I felt like I was supposed to be, and I'm not sure who taught me this, or I just absorbed it somehow, but I felt like I was supposed to be emotionally neutral all the time. And so there was a lot of passion, enthusiasm, curiosity, and so forth that I didn't really express. And when I started moving into teaching that way, even when I was a high school teacher, I felt like it really helped draw my students in more. And I think that's easier and safer to do with curiosity and enthusiasm. I do think uh, outrage and grief need to be managed more carefully. But I think if you're teaching about something like a genocide and and there isn't some sense of weightiness that you convey as a teacher or some sense of, uh, of sadness about that, uh, there does feel like a disconnect between the topic and the stance that you're taking toward the topic. Uh, I did a lot of workshops when I was working at Long Beach State for a while with, uh, with someone who was in the Jewish Studies program, and he routinely taught on the Holocaust. And he talked about what an emotionally draining experience it was for him all the time because he couldn't teach the subject without being emotionally engaged in it. And it, it took a toll on him, but it was also essential to the way that his students then engaged in the topic. Yeah, I definitely 
could understand that. The um, I'm going to try a little exercise, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot because I don't even think any of this is in the article. But I just want to try the exercise of let's pick like a common topic that's taught in a history class and maybe kind of dive into how we could pull emotion out of that topic. So like, just, just to say like the signing of the Declaration of Independence, how could you make that more emotional? Well, I think you probably have to move beyond just the signers in the room. You'd need to find some primary sources that address the ways that everyday Americans responded to uh, to the event. And so there's there's all kinds of archival resources on newspapers from the era that would help would help students connect with some of the sense of enthusiasm. And I think on the reverse side, some of the anxiety that other Americans felt as well. Americans weren't universally enthusiastic about revolution. And I think the ambivalence of both enthusiasm and caution would help students recognize that there were there were pretty heavy stakes involved in in declaring revolution in breaking away from the most powerful nation on earth at the time. And so I think teasing that out a little bit would help students recognize that this wasn't just, you know, a document that they sometimes have to memorize the beginning to, but it was a a declaration of rebellion that, uh, that had implications that had it failed, uh, people might well have hanged for it as Benjamin Franklin suggested. Well, Dr. Newman, we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us about it, about this. Um, if somebody wants to keep up with you, uh, do you mm-hmm. like blog or are you on Twitter or anywhere? I am not good about those things. I've been nudged to do that, <laughs> but I haven't made the jump. That's fine. That's fine. Well, again, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us on Class Dismissed today. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? <laughs> Well, that deck seems a little bit stacked. I have to say history education, right? So um, I I think that in the last few years uh, with the coming of Common Core, there's been a real strong push for English and math. And I I wouldn't deny the centrality of those topics at all. But I do think that history education gives you a lot of opportunities to teach students literacy in a history-specific context, while at the same time giving students the tools for critical thinking and some understanding of civic awareness and civic commitments, and a sense of shared identity of uh, not only how we came to be as a nation, but also when we think about world history, uh, who we are as, as a people on planet Earth. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Well, I think as much as I've pushed the element of emotion, I think Critical thinking more generally, at least when it comes to, um, to history, I think remains a challenging topic. And, and within that, I would say the notion of significance, which is the question that students often implicitly ask, which is why should we bother to learn this? And I've encouraged my students when they go out into classrooms to anticipate that, cl- that question and be ready to answer it, to recognize that there should always be a good answer for that, uh, that that asking why a topic matters is really important and, and being able to dig into a good answer is, is part of what teachers should do. What does every child deserve? I think every child deserves a rich, challenging education that provides 
uh, literacy and the critical thinking skills to be successful and to have options to be able to go to college or if they choose not to go to college to be successful in a career. I think that's a matter of equity. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Well, so along those lines, I think the the lower literacy levels of many students, many students come in with uh, reading several grade levels behind and to engage students in the kinds of rich and rigorous texts and conversations we want to have, we often have to uh, actively develop their literacy skills while we teach content. What's the best gift to give an educator? (laughs) A gift card to Amazon so they can keep reading and learning themselves. Which teacher changed your life? Uh, I had I, I had the good fortune to have a number of, of fantastic teachers when I was, particularly when I was in high school, but I would say my senior year English teacher really changed my life in terms of his own passion for the subject and the way that he engaged his students in conversation where he had a measure of respect for them, where he, he treated them us where he treated us as conversation partners in a meaningful discussion about various texts and films and that sort of thing. And that was really contagious. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right, Dr. Dave Newman, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about emotion in uh, history education. uh, And uh, hopefully uh, we can talk again soon. Thanks very much. Again, I appreciate you having me on. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>